Welcome back to the second half hour of Green Rush Live, our regularly scheduled live business of cannabis talk show here on Pro Cannabis Media. I'm Jimmy Young, the founder of Pro Cannabis Media and sometimes host of this show. Uh, Josh Kincaid from Washington State joins us. He, of course, hosts his own podcast. Hey, Josh, talk a little bit about the talking hedge for a little bit, and then we'll, we'll bring Aaron in. Give yourself a plug. Go ahead. The Talking Hedge, your cannabis business podcast. Um, <clears throat> you talk about uh, some analytics, sales, trends, nerdy stuff that I like diving into when I'm not uh, bogged down with with the COVID. But you know, we were talking on the earlier session about uh, the heat and whatever, and I didn't mind being on the beaches of France, so I can't complain. But Talking Hedge talks about international um, events and. Uh, and what's happening locally at the ground level and how it affects businesses overall and the impacts that some laws might have, uh, legalization, things of that nature. There you go. And uh, you can find it on YouTube. Am I right? You can 40 plus platforms because you never know when you're going to get shut off. <laughs> and keep backing them up and then backing them up. Hey, let's bring on uh, a, a guy that I have a lot of respect for and I've known almost since the very beginning of Pro Cannabis Media. Uh, his name is Aaron Smith. He's the CEO of the NCIA. He wears the brand on his sleeve, everybody, and it's right over his shoulder. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here, Jimmy. All right. So reaction to the Schumer bill, the CAOA a bill that now has got a hundred more pages to it after listening to the industry as someone who leads an industry association. Are you pleased with what has now been brought to the Senate floor? Um, absolutely. You know, this is uh, this is the most comprehensive piece of cannabis legislation that the Senate's ever seen. Um, or actually all of Congress. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not, a, it's not a perfect bill by any means, but I don't think there's such thing as a perfect bill. So we'll be working on some improvements, but, um, overall it's, uh, it's a great piece of legislation and, uh, we look forward to, to building support and hopefully one day getting to 60 votes. <laughs> I, I don't mean to make fun of that. Okay. But we all know how challenging it is with the, um, political divide in Washington, DC, and even some of the some of the Republicans are coming over and the Democrats are coming over. It's still going to be a challenge. Let me ask you a question. How do you identify, do you, do you, do you go after 10 people, five people? Do you have like a target list? How do you decide where your efforts of lobbying are going to be? Well, I mean, it's it, a lot. Of, some, some of this is ideological. So, you know, you've got libertarians, you know, on the right, like Rand Paul, for example, who's going to support legalization. Uh, but then you have other, I think there's also a pragmatic approach that a lot of senators end up taking, like say Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, where, you know, they're, they're Republicans, but they represent a state that has made marijuana legal. And so, you know, the more of those that we have, uh, the, the more, you know, this will grow, the more support grows in Congress. And so you know, we're not at 60 yet, and I don't think we will be this year, but uh, it's getting close. And you think even after the midterms that they're, you're still going to be having to go after 60, right? Well, yeah, well, no comment on the midterms, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we'll, you know, I mean, if uh, it'll be a different world, if uh, Mitch McConnell is uh, leading the Senate again, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, but Republicans are coming along. This is, you know, if you, if you believe in getting government out of your life and small government and all that, well, who's, who should, you know, who's for not allowing states to move forward with cannabis policies. Uh, I just want to make mention that you brought up Mitch McConnell's name before I did. Okay, just for the record here. 
because I still think he had no clue the Pandora's box he was opening with that farm bill in 2018. Am I right, guys? No, no. idea, right? And, and, and has he learned anything from it? He thought he was helping out his, his tobacco farmers by giving them another cash crop. And it, it's kind of blown up in his face. And it shows, I might add. <laughs> well, I mean, but it's just, you know, I think I see policy as just an evolution. And that was one that was one good step. And now there's a lot that needs to be done to 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 regulate uh, cannabinoids at the, you know, hemp and marijuana derived cannabinoids at the federal level. Um, you know, whether it be like a, in some cases, like a food product in other cases, like a, a, a psychoactive drug. Um, but, you know, every, I think we get, to, we're going to get to the a better place incrementally. And uh, that was one incremental step forward. I got to give them that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Josh, you have something for Aaron or, or you can think of one and I got another one if you want. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was wanted to follow up on uh, the 10th annual lobby days that either you you got coming up or just did and what uh, some of the, the main goals were or takeaways from that. It's September. It's right? coming up, but that's, uh, I appreciate that's a good softball question. I love talking about lobby days. <laughs> um, it's one of our, our favorite events, I think, of our members. Um, we haven't done it since 2019 for uh you know, pandemic reasons. So we're really excited to come back to Washington, D.C. And essentially, our members come into town. Uh, we, we set them up in groups, and they go and they meet with members of Congress all around Capitol Hill, uh, members of Congress and their staffs, committee staff, um, and talk about the issues that are facing them. And it's, you know, we, we have lobbyists. Uh, you, you know, you know Michael Correa well, and Michelle and, and Maddie are lobbyists in D.C., uh, but it's one thing to hear from them every day. It's another thing when you hear from directly from the people that are affected by outdated ca cannabis policies. So, you know, we're going to be talking a lot about KOA. We're going to be, you know, uh, trying to advance that bill. Um, but in some ways, more importantly, uh, we will be pushing really hard for the Safe Banking Act uh, if it's not passed into law by then, uh, which, you know, by then we'll only have a few legislative days left in the year. So we really want to get that over the finish line this year. Does the leverage of the midterms, uh, I, it obviously enters into every political discussion, but does it help at this point to maybe get safe banking across the finish line first before those midterms happen? Is that at all a possibility? Well, I mean, I, I we're working hard and, and I hope so. You know, um, it <laughs> it doesn't make sense to, to not do it when it would make, you know, a, a lot of people happy in a lot of states that have uh, issues around cash, you know, cash handling with because of cannabis is legal at the state level, but not at the federal level. Um, and I think it would, you know, it would obviously make our industry happy, which would be good for uh, the coffers of these candidates. And, and so, you know, um, I, I think that it should have been done a long time ago. Um, but, you know, there's also been, we've had a pandemic, we have a war in Ukraine, you know, there's a lot of, you know, uh, inflation, a lot of issues that the, that the Senate and the House have been facing. Um, but safe banking has passed the House now seven times uh, in some form or another. And it's it's currently uh, in the National Defense Authorization Act, um, which is a you know, must pass bill to keep the, the military funded. Um, and it, and uh, it keeps getting stripped out on the Senate side, uh, despite uh, Democratic uh, majority. And despite the fact that if we know that if it got a vote, it would get 60 votes uh, be in the Senate. Uh, but for some reason, uh, it just continues to hit a roadblock. Uh, with with us with leader Schumer over there so we've got I think 20 days left of the legislative calendar or something like that so um, you know let's get it done it, it at least now I'm guessing those that are up for election 
uh, during the midterms know that they better have a policy on how they feel about the movement of cannabis towards decriminalization. Uh, that has to help your cause, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, when I, I first started working on this issue, like 17 years ago, almost 20 years ago, and uh, usually when somebody, you know, somebody like a senator or a member of Congress was asked about what they thought of, of marijuana, they just laughed. It was like not even an issue. Um, and then, you know, slowly but surely we built the support to where you're absolutely right. Everybody has to come down on one side or the other. Um, and most, you know, it's, it's very rare that you see a Republican standing up and giving a speech on the House floor um, against cannabis. Like they used to do, you know, all the time you would have that. And now it's pretty, you know, we, we do, we, we haven't won everybody over, but um, it's our opposition has definitely softened up. It, is there a way to identify um, who some of these roadblocks or perhaps middle of the road Republican senators are that have tremendous control now based on the makeup of the Senate. Is there any way to identify which ones we should be um, talking to? What states? In other words, do you guys do like phone campaigns yeah. into those states to get their constituents to to call and and send emails out? I mean, is that an effort that happens on a regular basis? Is that a strategy? I guess is what yeah, I'm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, believe it or not. Um, you know, however cynical people get about politicians in this country, they do really listen to their constituents um, for the most part. And that so number one, call wherever you happen to live and vote, call your two senators and your member of the, of the House. And if they and if they're already supportive on cannabis, still call them and thank them for their support. Um, and uh, you can go on our website, thecannabisindustry.org and click on the congressional scorecard, which will show you. Uh, every member of Congress and which bills they're sponsoring. So Safe Banking Act, for example, has, I think, 42, 40 or 42 uh, co-sponsors in the Senate. And you can see who, who those senators are that sponsored it. If your senator is has not, please call and ask that they sponsor it, especially if you live in a state where cannabis is legal in some form. So, so the word sponsor... Um, is almost like a yes vote. Is that what I'm? I'm, I'm it's a it's a yes vote and then some. It's saying that you know they're putting their name on it. So if we we need sixty votes, we have forty or, or so co-sponsors. You know, it wouldn't be too hard to get another. We know we were pretty sure we have another twenty that maybe aren't thrilled about it enough to sponsor it, but they're going to vote for it because they know it's good policy and good politics uh, too. When when Morgan when we were debriefing on the bill uh, with Morgan. Um, he shared the amount of tax that still seems to be in the discussions. And again, they, they sounded exorbitant. Have you been able to identify those numbers? Are they at 25% for the yeah, Up to 25%. So it's a, it, they have it on sort of a graduated scale. Um, I will admit that it's much better than when they, when they first put the, the bill out, it was just 25%. Um, the discussion draft that came out last year and I think every, you know, every industry advocate in DC opposed to that. Um, so it's, it's better, but uh, we're still going to work on, on reducing that because I think, I mean, we already have a problem in, you know, in states that are cannabis is overtaxed and people are still going to the underground market. Like California is the prime example in the industry. You know, they're, they're having to make some reforms there and they are making some progress there. But, uh, you know, the whole reason voters vote to legalize cannabis, believe it or not, is usually not because they like consuming it themselves. It's because they don't want a criminal market in their neighborhood for a substance that's safer than alcohol. So 
uh, if, if we legalize and people are still going to a criminal market, we know that there's some policy uh, incentives are not aligned uh, properly. And I'm, I do fear a, a federal tax that would, on top of uh, these onerous state taxes that already exist, would be quite detrimental to the industry, especially the small businesses that uh, make up you know, Main Street cannabis. Yeah. Um, Josh, you got something? I do. Yeah, I'm curious. I saw that you guys are hosting a Colorado industry social event. So one of the first markets to open up was Colorado, and they're not immune to a lot of the decrease in pricing. I'm wondering if that's putting um, a little bit of a a stain on cannabis, because right now everyone's looking at some of the money and financing and opportunities and all that revenue uh, is creating FOMO. And I'm wondering if that's been eviscerated a little bit by the decline using Colorado as an example, they got a year over year sales growth of almost 20% uh, since August of 2021. We've seen consistent month over month decrease in purchasing. And you know, some of that was um, supposed to be attributed towards people going back to work or going out and enjoying things, but a lot of it is inflationary pressure. Yeah. And that's putting a, a rather odd or unique uh, uh, situation on a cannabis where there's deflationary results and there's pricing, the pricing pressure is coming down, people are spending less. And so is that therefore putting pressure on, um, on lobbyists or, or members of Congress who would have otherwise would enjoy a lot of uh, the tax revenue? Is that lack, is that luster being worn off in a sense? Um, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're, it's our job actually to, you know, educate lawmakers that, you know, this isn't a big, the big gold rush that uh, the media sometimes portrays cannabis and that, you know, we're not an, in, we're not an ATM machine for, for tax revenue. Um, and, you know, Colorado, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, we're seeing declines in Colorado, but elsewhere too, uh, declines in sales, I think pro- probably everywhere. Right. Um, and, I, and I think it is inflationary pressure primarily. Uh, but you you also have yeah the bounce back from COVID, where you know people were consuming at higher rates when they were in lockdown, um, and then you have uh, I mean another another factor that I think the state needs to address is that in Colorado and and many other states you have um, hemp derived cannabinoids that are psychoactive delta eight THC and others that you can buy over the counter at a head shop or a gas station completely unregulated uh, could be you know not even not even age restricted in most states yet. And uh, that's, a, you know, so we have a slightly regulated, highly regulated, highly taxed industry competing with that. Um, and that's something I know the state's, you know, state's working on here in Colorado. Um, but that's, I, I think there's sort of a, a confluence of a lot of reasons. But it does, um, you know, I mean, we, we, we have to be cautious when we, you know, we're, we're offering, we're the only industry out there offering to be taxed, saying, please tax us. <laughs> Uh, because we, you know, we at the federal level, because we, you know, are tired of federal prohibition and 280E is another issue that we can get into the federal taxes. Um, but at the same time, we can't be overtaxed or, you know, sales plummet and they all go to the, the criminal market. And that's where, you know, no, no taxes are being paid over there. Do, do they still understand that there is a very vibrant uh, legacy market out there uh, that competes with the law-abiding legal investors uh, in this space? I mean, do they do, do our elected officials understand that? Um, I mean, to some de- to varying degrees, yeah. You know, it's and this is a 
that, you know, the, the number of people consuming cannabis hasn't gone up that much in recent years. Uh, it's been a pretty, you know, it's been pretty stable for decades. Um, and people are used to getting it on the, on the, you know, from their friends or on the streets or, or whatever. And as, you know, I, I really truly believe that the, the vast majority of consumers would much prefer to walk into a store and have cannabis products of a wide variety of options, knowing that they're tested and labeled with their, you know, the potency and everything like that, than getting it from a friend. But also, especially when you're looking at 9% inflation, uh, it's the bottom line. And a lot of times it's, you know, it's cheaper to, to go somewhere where you're not paying the taxes. So I think this has, has to be while we started this industry saying, please tax us, and now it's kind of back off a bit because it's not, you know, it's not working if you overtax like they have in, in states like California. Yeah, I, and again, you, you could tax yourself out of an industry if it's, if it's so debilitating, if it's such a handcuff on, uh, on these dispensaries uh, that, that have the adult use licenses. I mean, it, I know there are plenty of people out there that are making lots of money in this space, but there's also a lot of people struggling. I think I saw 43% of cannabis companies are profitable at this point or have made money. And that means that six, uh, whatever the 57%, Josh, you're my math guy. Did I do it right? 57, 43, 57. No, you can't use my brain right now, Jimmy. I got the COVID. Oh, it's not working. <laughs> I think it is 53% means they're not more than half are not making money go. in the business and they've done everything right. And they've been, they've complied. They've got their licenses. They've opened up. And they just can't get it done. And, uh, you know, I hear the frustration. I was at an opening today uh, down in Attleboro, Massachusetts, which is just over the border from Rhode Island in Massachusetts. They have two dispensaries within uh, about 100 yards of each other. And it's buried in an industrial park. Now, anybody who understands the rollout of these things, that's not a surprise. OK, we understand that's where a lot of the town officials want to put the cannabis dispensaries out of time. You have to drive to it, you know, but putting them in the same neighborhood. I mean, how many liquor stores are across the street from each other is kind of where I'm going with that. Aaron, yeah. what's your feeling about how towns in these legal states are governing and placing these licensed facilities into these industrial parks? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it, it makes no sense because, you know, <laughs> um, this is a retail, it's a, it's a retail facility, like a, you know, and, and unlike a liquor store, a child can't even walk into the dispensary. So it's extremely secure. Um, and, you know, when you see, you know, we, we've seen a patchwork of, you know, cities handling things very differently. Uh, you know, here in Denver, where I live, you know, dispensaries are pretty much, you know, everywhere in the retail, you know, commercial districts including on the, you know, very highly trafficked 16th Street Mall downtown. Um, and it's working great. And, you know, we're, all of the research shows that uh, crime actually decreases in the, in the vicinity of a dispensary when a dispensary is built uh, or is, is, um, is established in a location. Uh, and I think that's because, you know, these are highly, highly regulated businesses that have, you know, highly secure cameras all over them. They're, the, the owners and the management of these facilities have a lot on the line. So they, they're, they're really going to look out and make sure that there's no crime around them because they don't want to lose their license. So uh, it's, you know, by every measure, it makes just makes good sense to have uh, dispensaries in the approximate places you would put a liquor store. Um, and I think that that's going to be the trend as, you know, we, we see 
the you know first these or these states or localities are a little timid and they push them into the industrial areas or worse yet just ban them but then you start seeing okay well the neighboring the neighboring places aren't doing that and they're actually doing better and and generating more tax revenue for the jurisdiction and you know those those kind of ordinances can improve over time you know i i just learned something and for whatever reason i never thought about this so young kids can walk into a liquor store they just can't buy anything right is that what you said uh yeah i mean as far as at least in the states i've lived in i mean i don't i haven't actually researched all 50 states yeah. on the but you know you could walk into a, i mean you go to a grocery store and there's liquor on the counter or on the oh, that's shelves right. in, that's right. in many states depending so right. uh you know, I think maybe we're in Massachusetts, it might be a little different. I remember being out there and it was pretty, pretty secure. It's always different you know. in Massachusetts. It's yeah. always different <laughs> in the Northeast. We want to stand out. Now, similarly, I mean, I don't know if this is, I, I had heard that uh, that New Hampshire was paying off, you know, the, the local governments across the border to keep these counties dry so that people were coming in and paying taxes over there. I remember hearing that years ago. I think the same sort of thing could end up happening with, with cannabis if, uh, ordinances aren't put in place to make it easy and accessible for for consumers to obtain it. Right. There, there is no love loss on the border between New Hampshire and Massachusetts. It's always been a bit of a challenge. I have a dear friend who is a uh, elected official in the House at New Hampshire, and he has given me such an education about how state government works or how it tries to work. Yeah. Uh, and uh, again, and he is on the cannabis policy committees of New Hampshire, and they just continue to make it as difficult as possible to move forward uh, beyond the minuscule medical program uh, that they do have uh, in that state. Um, Aaron, uh, I, I want to let you talk a little bit more about the lobby days. Is that open to anybody? How does that work? Uh, it's only open to members. Ah. Um, so, you know, anybody who's a member, and members of NCIA are corporations or businesses. Yep. So, yep. You know, if your business is a member, all of the employees are also members. So, um, you know, we have some folks that bring their whole team out and then others, you know, maybe just the CEO will be there. And uh, it's businesses from across the country. Um, you can go on our website, thecannabisindustry.org slash lobby days and find out more information. But it's September 13th and 14th. And we, we usually open it up with a kind of an informal happy hour uh, as people fly into town. Um, and then the next day will be nine to five meetings. Uh, it's, and each group does seven or eight meetings a day, probably, you know, depending on logistics. Uh, and then we'll close it out with a reception with some of our uh, top allies in Congress and have a little fun at the uh, at the end. And, and then everybody goes home and feels really enriched. And I, I think it's a good, um, I mean, it's obviously good in that it's, a, it's helpful for uh, educating members of Congress to hear from the industries. Many of them don't. Um, but it's also great for our members because they, I think they get a deeper appreciation of what we're doing and what we're facing every day. Oh, yeah. um, and, uh, and it's also just, a, it's a great overall experience. You connect with each other, you, that, you know, your work, it's not like an event we go to in the evening and you, you know, have a couple of drinks and go home. It's, you know, you're working with a group of, of other industry contemporaries for a whole day uh, of meetings and people make, you know, best friends at lobby day. So uh, definitely uh, want to, you know, come back with a bang and hope, uh, hope everybody uh, looks at registering. Yeah, and I'll, I'll give a personal plug. I got to go to the last one. I, I really enjoyed it. I loved uh, doing my official stand-up outside the Capitol, but I learned a very valuable lesson from the Capitol Police. Did you know that if you are a videographer and you are using a tripod, 
you must get permission from the Capitol Police to actually put the tripod out in public on the stairs anywhere near that area. And uh, I learned that the hard way, but the guy was really nice to me. And I mean, I immediately took it down and I said, okay, I'll just put it right here on this table and, you know, manipulate the uh, the lens a little bit. And now, uh, you know, you do the interview, but it, uh, it was a valuable lesson for uh, yours truly. And uh, as someone who did enjoy, and I also got to see you work, Aaron. Okay. I got to see you walking from the Capitol back to the office building and you were working. I don't know who you were with, but you were working somebody there. Cause I knew you were deep in conversation with them. That is that not how it is done? Yeah. It's uh, it's, it's, I, I it's, per, it's personally my favorite uh, project or event that we do or experience, I guess it's a series of events. Um, and, you know, it's good. I don't get to do lobbying um, very much anymore in my capacity as the CEO, but that's kind of where I, where I started in, as an advocate doing this. So it's great for, for me to be able to, you know, have two day, one or two days of lobbying meetings one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. And I think it's good for, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, as a citizen of the United States, that's really one of your fundamental rights is the ability to, you know, redress the government. And uh, it's, it's been unfortunate that under COVID, the, you know, the, the offices have been closed. Um, they actually are still, under different sort of regulations so the you know the the meetings will be set up in advance and a staffer has to come down and escort the group to the meeting um and i you know for whatever reason but i'm really glad that we're, we're going to be able to come back yeah just stay away from president biden because he's got it now you know and then you'll have to put yourself in quarantine and i give josh a lot of credit i mean he he came down with it over a week ago and i said are you well enough to to join me and and he said yes so um uh, Josh, any last questions for Aaron? No, I mean I'm curious if if an SRO is the is the solution. If having a self regulatory organization is the way to go, in a similar way that um, the banking industry has done it. I don't know if you've got a a solution or not. If you think that's yeah, the way to go. Yeah, I mean that's. I think that that is the direction the industry um, should go in. I think what's been a challenge for that though is that the the, the states are so ahead in regular. And, and every state is regulating the industry differently, which is, you know, challenging for multi-state operators, obviously. Um, but it's, it's, I think it's challenging to start an SRO and we've seen some come and go in the space because it's hard to get the industry on board with, you know, self-regulation when they're already facing, you know, heavy, probably over-regulation at the state level. Uh, but I know, the, you know, there was the, uh, National Association of Cannabis Businesses just closed their doors and they were they were sort of doing that. Um, but, I, you know, I think I think it's the future, ultimately, but I think it's it's hard to do with an industry that's still illegal under under federal law. So um, I think that's the number one, you know, in, in terms of getting to normalcy, uh, we need to we need to end federal prohibition. And uh, the uh, next week, um, the Senate Judiciary Committee will be holding a hearing on Wednesday. Um, I'm sure they'll be talking a lot about the KOA, the 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 uh, Schumer Booker Wyden bill, and also just general, um, you know, the issues and concerns and problems around cannabis prohibition. So really looking forward to seeing that. And, uh, and then of course, advancing, advancing this legislation through the Senate. Optimistic that something will happen between now and the midterms, or are we waiting till next year? Like we used I'm remaining to cautiously optimistic about safe banking. Um, you know, it's, they, they, you know, sometimes it seems like Congress does nothing but then they can do a lot real fast if they when they when they need to. So, 
Um, I'm, I'm remaining cautiously optimistic. We're working hard, thanks to our members that, that allow us to, you know, have boots on the ground in DC every day. And, uh, you know, let's, let's get it done. All right, man. Hey, Aaron Smith, uh, I really appreciate you coming on on a Friday afternoon. Uh, I know it's the end of the week and it's been in a very eventful week down there. Um, in, even though I know you're in Denver, it, it was Washington, D.C. You're never far away. Uh, thank you so much. And you are welcome as we talked before uh, anytime on this program. I've always enjoyed your company. Great. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We're going to come back on the other side. And Josh and I are going to do a tap dance for a couple of minutes before Thomas Howard comes in. Don't go away. We'll be back with more after this. With that, we're going to roll this one up. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Or don't. And I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out. And check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Tune into a major journey podcast today, where guests take listeners on journeys and immerse themselves in the roller coaster ride both in and out of the cannabis space that brought them to where they are today. Throughout our conversations, guests share valuable lessons that they've learned along the way that listeners can use to empower growth both in their personal and professional lives. Check out a major journey today on all major podcast platforms.